0: Thank you for coming today. Glad that you are here. It has been a blessing to be together already, hasn't it? If you are a guest, thank you so much for coming out. There is a blue visitor card. looks like this. If you would fill that out for us, drop that in our offering or get that to me after the service. Give us a chance to find out if there's some way we could pray for you or or help you or be a spiritual uh, benefit to you. Um, and answer any questions that you have. This is the blue folder I was talking about that we will be doing, uh, using kind of as a guide for our job fair at the end of the service. So uh, after the service, they're on these round tables. They're also out in the the hall, and we're going to talk about job fair as we get done today. Uh, Give you an opportunity to sign up to serve. If you're a part of our church here at Hope, we do this thing together. We don't do it alone, Uh, and we're going to talk about that as we get to the end of our service today. What I want to do now is I want to get back to our story in the book of Esther. So Esther chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Esther chapter 4. And we're going to go through most of the chapter. Not all of the chapter, but most of the chapter. And I don't know how many of you uh, are very familiar with the book of Esther before we started reading it here or not, but it's a pretty cool story. It's a story, um, you know, an unusual story certain for, for this time, uh, for a foreigner and a woman to be the central character of the story. Uh, but it's one of the things that God has always done has shown that He's not about what category you fit into. He's just about whether or not you're willing to follow Him and, and willing to be used by Him to do incredible, incredible stuff. So Esther chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. Now, sometimes in your life, you find a place where you just know you were made to do this it's a fit You're like it, it i don't know what's the what's the feeling like when when you find that place where it's like this is what i was made to do do you know what i'm talking about it just if it fits you like a glove, um, it, it, it just flows from you just so naturally, it, it it's exciting, it's fresh, it's alive, it doesn't seem to drain you, it, it seems to energize you, you seem like uh, you know, it's almost unexplainable why it's so easy for you to do what maybe other people would think, oh that's really, really hard, you know, and, and so there are places where the, the, there's that different feel and, and it just comes naturally. That's not what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about places where God has made you for, things God has called you to, that are very different in their field. Really the complete opposite. It's not easy. It's hard. It's scary. It's overwhelming. It feels like if I go step forward into this path that God has put in front of me, I'm not going to make it. Ever had a calling like that in your life from God? It may be the calling of your life in terms of the roles that you have, or it might just be a path that he calls you to for some window of time. But it's a hard thing to come to grips with the reality that God has made you for something that doesn't feel comfortable, that doesn't feel easy. But I'm going to ask you, have you ever considered that God might have made you for something that scares you to death? that God might have called you to something that is so overwhelming or hard that you just want to run instead? Has that ever crossed our mind? Could it be that God's path for me will make me feel weak instead of strong? Maybe some of the struggle we have as believers is that we define God's path for my life, knowing God's path for my life, as feeling Strong in it, feeling good, feeling capable, feeling ready. Sometimes we use a term like open doors and closed doors. I just go through the open doors and if God closes the door, and that's a good analogy. It's, you know, like all analogies, it has its limitations. But sometimes that way of talking brings us to believe that there's never a time where the journey God called us to is meant to be hard and to struggle and faced with opposition and obstacles, and sometimes it is, and it does. What are we going to do in a moment like that? There have been times in my life where that moment came, where it was God's calling on my life to stand up, to take a stand, but all I wanted to do was disappear. Anybody with me on that? In that moment, I had a choice, and it's a choice that we all have every day. It was a choice about whether or not I was going to walk by faith. It was very clear that God had placed me in a position where it was my role to do something, to speak up, to find a way to take a stand or whatever, but I didn't like it. And the reality is, no one blamed me for running and hiding. But the problem is, it doesn't work. If God has called you to stand up and face something, There is no running and hiding from the good God wants to bring by the hard path He's called you to. You cannot walk around and find a shortcut, find another path. You've got to walk the path that He made for you. In my role as a dad, there have been conversations that I've had with my kids that I have hated, that I dreaded, that I didn't want to have. In the middle of the conversation, I just wish there was a ripcord that I could pull and, you know... Like, poof, we're out of here. This conversation's over. Everything's fixed. But what do you do? I know this conversation is killing me. Am I going to just opt out? No, God has called me to be the dad. I have to be here. I have to speak up. I have to navigate this. In my role as pastor, there have been times where I had to stand up for what I believed God was doing in my soul, but it meant tension with people that I love. It meant hurt. It meant heartache. It felt like it would never work out. What was I going to do? Take the easy way, the political way? Say what people wanted to hear? Agree with people that I didn't want to hurt? Or was I going to follow God and stand up for it? The truth is, in in those moments, we don't know how it's going to turn out. And sometimes that makes us less interested in knowing what God's path is. If I don't know how God's path is going to turn out, some of us go, well, then I'm not sure I want to take God's path. That's one of our vulnerabilities as believers. If I I have to know where it winds up in order to decide whether or not I want to follow God, then you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at the the outcome instead of the, the one who holds you. You're looking at a decision tree about results instead of a redeemer and a savior and, and, and a God who is your father, right? So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that moment here. We're going to see that, that all of us face this pull to just make it all better, to just put a band-aid on it, to just move on, to just forget about it, to just per- wish it all away, to escape from it. But I will tell you, there is nothing worse than choosing short-term comfort at the expense of long-term devastation. Who has experienced that? There is nothing more ensnaring, enslaving, and entangling than when you start to choose short-term comfort over long-term benefit. And what you wind up with is, well, I'll take the short-term comfort, but what I'll wind up with is long-term devastation. People are wrecked over and over again by that choice. And So as we look at this story, that's the question I want to pose. What has God called you for? What has God prepared you for? Where has God placed you that will be hard, that will be difficult, that will be scary, that will be hurtful? And when you face that, what will you do? Will you stand up or will you try to disappear? Will you face the pain and the struggle or will you try to wish for escape? And in this story, what you'll find is that our instinct to turn away may keep you from the greatest thing God will ever do through your life. Wow. What if God placed you on this earth for some great cause, for some great purpose, for the kingdom of God, but it requires you walking a path that you wish you didn't have to? And your inner desire to escape it, to avoid it, to get out of it, what if that stopped you from fulfilling your God-ordained grand purpose for this life? Wouldn't that be a shame? So let's take a look at this story in Esther chapter 4. Start with me at verses 1 to 3. It says this, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out to the, into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly but he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. All right, so what are we talking about here? From two weeks ago, if you remember, we're talking about Haman had found a way to to maneuver the king into issuing an order where all of the Jews would be killed. In 11 months thereabouts, in 11 months there was a day ordained and on that day all Jewish people would be put to death and their goods would be stolen. So basically there was a clock ticking. It's like saying if you're an American on this day, in a year from now, all Americans are fair game and, and what the expectation is is the army and the civilians and everybody who is around us in, the, in this world is going to come and just destroy you and you have no say, you are not allowed to defend yourself. It's like that. And so that news came down, and Mordecai reacts to it. And Mordecai reacts to news where there I don't know how you find a bright side to that news. Like, there's no silver lining to that news, is there? Eleven months, you're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. The most powerful king, the richest king in all the world, has said all the Jews will die on this day. Sometimes when we face trouble, when we face trial, we're told to look for the bright side. Ever been hard to look for the bright side? Did you know sometimes you're not called to look for the bright side? I mean, it makes sense because your perspective has real power. Whether, whether, you, know, whether you look at the, the down part or the dark part or whether you look at the bright part or the good part, like you know most things have kind of, you, depending on how you look at it, you can have like encouragement or you can have despair. But sometimes in life, there's no bright side. It's just miserable, right? And this is one of those things. Because what we like to do is we'd like to kind of sidestep the misery and and, and not have to face it. But Mordecai doesn't sidestep this misery at all. He embraces it. He he changes how he's dressed. He puts on traditional mourning clothes, sackcloth. He puts ashes on his head, which is a a way of representing great sorrow, overwhelming sorrow, like the loss of a, a spouse or something like that, like just unbelievable sorrow. And he goes around the city weeping and wailing. Everybody's going to see how upset Mordecai is about what has happened, right? The reality for us is sometimes we don't want to do the weeping and wailing. I worry about us, myself included, as believers, that we kind of get into this idea that God's will for us should be comfortable, that God's blessing and God's goodness has to show up in ease, in Desirable living in in things that we want. You you understand what I'm saying? Like, if you're praying for something and that doesn't happen, then that means, I wonder if God is good. Is God good even when life is hard? So, Mordecai doesn't try to sidestep at all, he just embraces it. This is miserable. (laughs) Right? And he goes around letting everyone know. Now, interestingly, he can't go into the king's gate because no one in sackcloth is allowed to enter it. We don't want any misery in the king's gate. Now, where did the problem come from? The king. So isn't that just like it? You know, The people who are the source of your misery don't want anything to do with your misery? Isn't that just like it? They got. I don't have time for you. Just pull it together. Just get over it. Just move on. Right? The source of your bad news disallows any sorrow over it. But he's gonna he's gonna mourn and weep wherever it's possible. You know, humanly speaking, when you hear that news, if Mordecai hears that news, the king has issued an edict that all the Jews will die. Then, humanly speaking, what's the solution? I gotta yeah, I got can run away, with the king pretty much owned all the world, so that's gonna be tough. I gotta talk to the king, but I'm not allowed in to the king's gate. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was devastating. It was hopeless. And the only kind of like human idea is the king's got to change his mind. We've got to talk to the king. No, you're not allowed to see the king. Because why? Because you're miserable and we don't want to see miserable people. And so if we're not going to talk to the king, how will God solve this? But what we're going to see is that when God brings solutions, so often it's through people and through actions that when we first heard the news seemed impossible. That's how God works. God has a setup oftentimes where what it looks like is hopeless so that the light of his hope shines brighter than we could possibly imagine. And So it says, In every province this Edict Order came to, there was great mourning, weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. There was mourning across the whole realm, the whole kingdom. Now that mourning, we don't like mourning. We would like to not mourn. We would like to not be filled with sorrow. We would like to not be upset. We'd like the people around us to not be upset. But that morning begins the process of unveiling God's plan. So keep going with me. Verse 4 down to verse 9. Here's what it says. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and to explain it to her. He told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said all right so Esther hears she's in the king's palace she hears Mordecai's upset Mordecai, Mordecai is mourning and the Bible says that she was in great distress when she heard about Mordecai she was in great distress now in the Hebrew this is not a subtle phrase this is the, the word is she was literally writhing in pain over Mordecai's distress now that's one of the realities about life. When you care about someone, when you're in a relationship with someone, their pain is your pain, right? Sometimes when they're in pain, you're in more pain than you would be if it was you, right? So Mordecai is really upset, but because Esther loves him, because he was a father figure to her, she is in great distress, right? And so one of the reasons we try to make other people feel better is because we're miserable with them. And we don't want to be miserable. We don't want them miserable. I can't take it that they're miserable. And so Esther says, we're going to try to solve this. So what does she do? She sends clothes for him. Well, he's wearing sackcloth, and and maybe if he has clothes, that will fix the problem. Now, why does he have sackcloth on? He's upset. He put sackcloth on. So sending him clothes is not going to fix his problem. Right? But Esther goes, well, I don't know what to do. I want him to stop... Being upset. So I'm going to send him clothes. She's responding to the need. She wants to make it better for him. But she's responding to surface issues. She's just getting, hey, just change your clothes. Stop crying. Mordecai would be like, "Uh, guess what? We're all still going to die no matter what I'm wearing. Right? So we've got to get down to this idea that there was no remedy for this. There was no medicine for this. There was no way to say, well, this is going to be okay. It wasn't going to be okay. And Mordecai was expressing that, and Esther says, please stop expressing it, I can't take that. I can't take your sadness, I can't take your sorrows. Here's a change of clothes, just put something different on. Just look better, stop making such a fuss, and we'll be okay. Mordecai says, no, I'm not putting the clothes on. So that tells Esther, well, that's not going to fix it. And she actually cares, so she digs deeper. Because the actual help that's going to come out of this comes from the fact that Esther shares Mordecai's misery, that she feels his pain, that she is engaged and connected to him in a way where the solution is going to come from the fact that his pain matters to her. And she's going to step forward because she cares about Mordecai, because she cares about her people, because she's connected to them, not because she has the ability to send him new clothes. So she digs in deeper and she says, what's going on? And she hears, he sends her a copy of the edict. He sends her an explanation through this servant. And what she hears, can you imagine hearing that the the, the king that you have been married to, the king that you are now the queen of, has issued a decree to wipe your people off the face of the earth. It is unimaginable. It is news that it wasn't like you. she stayed up at night worrying, I wonder if the king's going to annihilate my people. That was not even conceivable to her. It was out of nowhere. It was out of the blue. All of a sudden, this edict is issued and it's like, what is going on here? How did we get here? How did this happen? We're going to wipe all of my people off the face of the earth? That doesn't even seem real. That seems cartoonish. That seems imaginary. What... What are you talking about? This is what's going to happen. So she hears this. It is unbelievable to her. But then Mordecai says to her, and I hope you noticed it at the end. He told him, at the end of verse 8, told him, that is the servant, to instruct her, that is Esther, to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Go into the king's presence, beg for mercy, plead for your people. That's what Mordecai says to, to Esther Go do this. It is a dramatic solution. And, and suddenly we start to see, I see what's happening here. I see what this story is about. I see why this story starts with Vashti being removed as queen and Esther being elevated to queen as a a young Jewess that, that really had no business being queen. And yet she is all of a sudden queen. And then we see how Haman gets really upset with Mordecai because he won't kneel down and he maneuvers into this edict. And all of a sudden when Mordecai says, go to the king and beg for your people, you go, ah. I see what's happening here. I see what God is doing. I think up to that point, Esther might have been thinking, I don't know why I'm the one who is here. I don't know why I'm the queen. I don't know what God is doing. I don't know why anyone would do this. I'm not sure what all this means. But in that moment, I think the the light bulb went on for her. And she said, is this why? Is this what God brought me here for, all of a sudden, maybe and it seems like years later, we're talking about five, six, seven years later, all of a sudden it becomes very apparent why Esther is in this place. And so pick up with me the story of verse 10 down to verse 14. Here's what it says. Then she instructed him, that is this servant, to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned has but one law, that they be put to death. Unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think. That because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It turns out Esther has no opportunity. She has no right to go to the king. Now that sounds a little bit weird. We would be like, well, she's the queen. Shouldn't she just go... You know, talk to the king. She's married to the king. That makes sense. And yet what she says as she begins is, everybody knows there's just one law about going into the king. If you go into the king without him asking for you to come in, you die. That's the law. If you go in without being asked, you die. Now, there is an exception to that law. The king can save you, but, you know, the the idea is, the presumption is you'll be put to death. Now you can go. Well, he married her, so he probably likes her, right? So, but would you bet your life on it? You know, would you walk into that court knowing that the, the the default law is you die, unless the king does something? You know, well, the king likes me; I'm sure he'll save me. Would you bet your life on it? And so, and then we find out that you know Esther's processing this. Well, what chance do I have? And she says. Listen, I'm going to be in danger of death. I can't go in there because the law is I die unless the king decides to save me and I haven't talked to the king for 30 days. So I don't, I don't know what that means, but you know, you can imagine. He didn't like her right then for some reason, right? He, she didn't wear the, his favorite scarf or whatever. And you know, I'm not talking to you or whatever. She had doubts, about her safety. She thought it was decently probable that she would die if she went in. And, and yet this is what her uncle says to her. Go in. Go present yourself to the to king. Beg for mercy for your people. Well, if I do that, I'm going to die. What would you do in that scenario? What would you do if stepping into what felt like, well, God put me here for this reason meant you might die. You probably would die. You felt like it was going to be the end of you. What would you do? Would you step forward into that? Or would you run away? And now it's obvious that God put her as queen for this moment. But at that moment, I would say for her, it probably didn't feel that easy, that clear. It seemed deadly. It seemed like something to be avoided. This can't be the answer And so for you and I, here's the application that we take from that. Do we ever turn away from what God has for us because of fear? What if Esther had done that? What if Esther had said, no, this is too scary. I can't step into what God has brought for me because I could die. What would happen to this story? What happens in your story when God calls you forward into something that requires courage, that requires a faith that will not be shaken? When God says, I want you to walk this path and I want you to trust me that I'll be in this path and we go, no, too scary. What happens to the story that God was writing for us? I'm talking about the stuff where it's clear that you're the one that is in position to do something. I think in this moment, As Mordecai says, go to the king. It is clear that God placed her as queen for this moment, for this purpose, to save her people. That's why God put her there. She didn't feel strong. She didn't feel ready. She didn't feel safe. She felt weak. She felt scared. She felt like, I can't do this. But was it God's calling for her? So so apply that to your life. Is it possible that God would call you to a place that scares you? where you feel weak instead of strong. But God wants to use you anyway. And God placed you there for that moment. I'm talking about that stuff where God has placed you in that position and you need to stand up, you need to speak up, you need to to move forward. But before you do that, you have to wrestle with your own fear, with your own doubt. You've got to come to grips with it. You can't pretend it's not there. It's there. You've got to face it. You've got to decide what you're going to do with it. Is the fear and doubt going to win? Is it going to determine the way that you think about stuff, the way that you trust God, the way that you talk about God, the way that you talk about your life, the way that you talk about this situation? Is your fear and doubt going to be in the driver's seat for all of that? Or is your faith going to be in the driver's seat for that? I'm not talking about the moment you get the news, right? If if you get the news that you lost your job, I'm not saying in that moment you're like, well, this is fine. God's got me. There's probably a little bit of time where it's like, what's going on and what are you doing, God? And you've got to face the fears and the doubts that come. But I'm talking about after that time to process it, where do you wind up? Where do you land? Where are you going to set your feet? Where are you going to take a stand and say, this is going to be in God's hands and it's going to be okay? How are we doing at that? Stepping forward into what God has for us. Separating, you know, maybe, maybe there's some things in your life where, you know, this is something God's asked me to do. There's a lot of fear and doubt around it. There's insecurity about it. I feel weak in it. How are we doing it? Separating our faith from all that stuff and, and separating the decision making from that fear and that doubt. Maybe, like, for example, God's called you to share your faith with some people that you think will never believe. Maybe it's family members, maybe it's coworkers, maybe it's neighbors, and you're like, they have no interest in believing. I learned a long time ago as a youth pastor, people who don't seem like they're listening are listening. People who think that all you think they're there to do is shoot holes in your story, they're probably the ones watching the most carefully to see whether you're going to live by the faith that you declare or whether you're just going to pretend like everybody else. And in some of those darkest moments, in some of the darkest moments of our life, God has used it, unbeknownst to us, to minister faith to other people who were far, far away from God. And I didn't know it at all through the process. But later on, it came back guess what? I watched how you went through that. I wanted to see if it was real or fake. I wanted to see if you were really going to trust God or not. And when you did, and you did, not just for a day and not just for a week and not just for a month, but as that thing went on and that firestorm poured out on you and you just kept trusting God, it changed my life because I said, if they believe it, I can believe it too. Will faith work its way out or will I give into the the fear of it. Maybe there are some of you, there are some of you here who have to separate yourself from the unhealthy and the unspiritual in your life. And you're scared of that. You're scared of stepping away from stuff that you're used to, you're comfortable to, you don't know what it will mean to push back away from those things, from those habits, from those patterns, from whatever. It may mean letting go of someone's opinion of you. Yikes. What if it's your mom's opinion of you? What if it's your spouse's opinion of you? How do I, what do I do if I have to let go of what someone thinks about me? What do I do? Some of you don't even know how to do that, to let go of someone's approval and just surrender it. It may mean standing for what is right, even when it costs you dearly, more than you think you can afford to lose. Maybe your job, maybe your marriage, maybe your reputation or your comfort. You have to take a stand and do what is right. Not so you're criticizing others, but because for you, this is the right thing to do and I have to do it. Maybe something's come up in your life and it's not an optional journey. It's not even something you can choose. Your options about whether you're going to face it by fear or by faith. You might want to just escape it. You might, it's so scary that you just want to opt out, but will you stand and face it in faith? You can only do that when you trust the Lord beyond your circumstances when God is bigger than anything you face, when God is your hope, no matter what it looks like, when God is a savior and a redeemer and a rescuer, and that's an established reality in your life, and nothing is going to shake that truth. Mordecai says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise, but from another place. Mordecai makes a couple of points one, one thing he says is this: God will accomplish his plan to save his people, whether you 're in or you 're out. God will do it anyway. for some of you 're like good then i don 't have to do it. Yeah, but did you see for you, it would be devastating, but for god he'll he 'll still, still work his plan out. For you, it will mean destruction, but God will still work his plan out. In other words, God is big enough. To overcome your failure. It's an invitation. It's not pressure. It's not like, oh, if you don't do it, no one will. It's an invitation. Will you come and be a part of this wonderful, awesome thing that God wants to do? Come on. Watch me work in you. I know you're frail. I know you're weak. I know you're scared. Come on. Trust me. Let's do this together. Invitation. Will you respond or won't you? It's not because, you know, it all depends on you. It all depends on Him. It doesn't depend on your source of strength or your preparedness. It depends on Him. But He works even if we run. He still works it out. Second thing, and I think from the other side, if there's someone in your life who refuses to respond to God's calling and their refusal has an effect on you, what did Mordecai just say? Salvation and deliverance will still arise from somewhere else. In other words, if someone betrayed their role in your life. They didn't do what was the right thing to do. And it had a negative fallout in your life. God will still work his plan out in your life. They didn't ruin it. Did you see that? Who are you trusting? Where is your vision? Where is your hope? Is it in how things are turning out? Is it in that person starting to make the right choices? Is it, is it? Are you up at night worried about this person that doesn't seem trustworthy that has so much sway over your life? Your trust shouldn't be in them. Your trust should be God will accomplish his purpose. Salvation and deliverance will arise from some other place. It doesn't have to be through them because God is faithful and God will come through. I think those two things are, are really cool because if someone could ruin God's plan for you, wouldn't that be awful? But no one can ruin God's plan for you because our God is big enough to heal and restore and redeem and accomplish his work regardless of what people choose to do around you. So if your spouse chooses to not respond to God, yeah, that's heartbreaking, but that doesn't ruin God's plan for you. If your boss is a crummy boss, yeah, that's terrible. It's an everyday, but guess what? That doesn't ruin God's plan for you. If someone who's in charge you know, of the country or, or a police officer, or whatever, if they do the wrong thing, God's got you. You don't have to worry about what everybody else is doing. Then Mordecai says, listen, you're not going to save yourself by running away. He says, if you decide to not do this, if you run and hide, if you opt out, it would be a deadly mistake to think that you are separate from the rest of us. Sometimes we do that. We draw imaginary lines and we think that we can opt out and not affect anyone else. I say this all the time about church. If you think that you staying home from church and not being regular here is just a single decision about you, you are so wrong biblically because we are a body. So when you're not here, that affects the body. Do you think that today if I came and I was missing my finger, that I wouldn't be aware of that? If my hand was gone when I got here today, well, my hand just stayed home. It's no big deal. Like, we just we have this idea that we're Americans and so we're all individual and we don't have any impact on each other. It's rubbish, biblically speaking. It's garbage. We are a body and we need to be together, Right? And when when we separate ourselves, well, I don't like that person and their personality doesn't fit me and I don't want to be around them. We just, we buy into this lie that somehow we're separated. When one of us suffer, we all suffer. When one of us wins, we all win. That's how this works. We are in this together. And that's why we can't afford for one person to do all the work or how many times have I heard in the past two months, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Man, that's garbage. That's not the way God designed this to be in a church. And that's not the way we operate. And it's not the way we're going to operate. Because we are together. We are not segregated and separated. God has called us to this kingdom work together. In Esther's time, it was to save his people. In our time, he calls us for lots of different purposes. To serve, to share the good news, to bring life and light and hope to one another. To bring life and light and hope to other people around us. Sometimes, like Mordecai, it takes someone else to step up and challenge us to it. Will you do this? Mordecai says to Esther, it's your turn. It's your moment. Step up. And I want to do that today with you. Where is your challenge? Where is the source of your fear? The path that makes you afraid? And you wish you could avoid it, but it seems like you can't. Will you grab a hold of faith today? You've got those doubts. You've got those fears. You've got those insecurities. You've got that, that I don't know what's coming thing. Got it. Now, what are you going to choose to drive your life with? Maybe when a crisis shows up in your life, you've got to decide what that crisis tells you about your standing with God. When this crisis showed up in the kingdom uh, of the Persians, in, in, in Xerxes' kingdom, and all the Jews were going to die, it was a crisis that showed up. You could argue very quickly that that means God can't possibly care about His people. Couldn't you? Is that what it meant? Not at all. When crisis shows up in your life, can that, does that mean God's not listening to your prayer and God doesn't care about it? Is that what that means? Apply that. Because maybe we need to change what it means when crisis shows up in our life. For Esther, it meant God's plan is ready to unfold. Uh, whether ready or not, whether you feel prepared, whether you feel strong enough, God's ready to use you. Will you take all that God has made you, every place God has put you, all that he has given you, and use it for what he asks. Will you be God's answer in the lives of other people? Esther had that opportunity. Esther had that moment. Will you have that moment, face it, and step forward? Even if it's dangerous, even if it's scary, to be his answer for others. And that's what we're going to close today with our job fair, which is just an opportunity for you to do that. Right? Let, me, let me just talk about it a little bit. Because as, as we close this story today, the question about whether Esther's going to respond is open. We don't know what she's going to do. We're going to find out next week. We don't know what she's going to do. But the question for us is, what are we going to do? The reality is God has brought us together as a church family to serve the kingdom of God. Every single one of us, He has a point and a purpose and a plan for us being here. You are not here by mistake. He has given us a message of hope for every person, for every person. A message of hope to share. What are we going to do with that? And so, you know, the church is not a place where we get together and enjoy music and and read the Bible together and pray for each other and meet friends and spend some time together. Ultimately, a church is a place of transformation. Being a believer is not about being the same. Being a believer is about being changed by the power of God. That opportunity comes as we follow what God has for us. It is when we start to build the kingdom of God together, when we start to serve the king together, when we start to follow his leading together. How does that happen? Well, it starts with this. And maybe this is where it would start with you. It starts with knowing Jesus, with deciding to follow him. I don't know where all of you are today, but I don't know that all of you have decided to follow Jesus. I don't know that all of you are like, here's my life, Lord, have it. It's yours. If you're not there yet, that's where this journey starts for you. It starts at giving your life to Him. Will you? Will you trust that His plan is better than yours, that you can't save yourself, that you need Him to come and rescue you? But if you've done that, and this is your church, then we have that opportunity to spread that good news around the world. I always talk about three basics to a healthy spiritual life. You want to be a healthy believer? Here are three basics. First of all, you have, to, you have to know the Lord. That's foundational. But then these three activities, these three um, patterns of living are what help you grow. You've got to show up. That means here. You've got to show up. You can't opt out. You can't fade into the background. You can't, you've got to show up. You've got to be here. Not every single week. Obviously, if you came last week, nobody else was here, right? So I'm saying, I understand that there are some times where you're sick and whatever, Absolutely. But what's the pattern of your life? What's the passion of your life? Do you show up or are you absent? Second thing is sacrifice. One of the ways that we keep ourselves healthy in our soul is we recognize that money is not the answer to my life. And some of the way I do that is by investing in the kingdom of God by giving money to sacrifice. The third way is to serve. I find a place to serve, to take the gifts God's given me and serve the kingdom of God with one another.